Yeah. Well, it's my privilege this morning to introduce you to Ron and Gillian Flores, who are our speakers this morning on the whole Mission Month theme. When Helen and I went to Azerbaijan in 2014, we heard that there were three Kiwis in the congregation of the church that we went to pastor, and that Gillian was one of them. And she was the principal of the School for Christian um, Missionaries, really, over there. And Ron, her husband, uh, they had met in Azerbaijan, and they got married, and they've got a little girl, and they've recently adopted a little Azerbaijani boy. We lived over there for three years in a city of four and a half million people. We changed the place where we lived on three different occasions, but we always lived within a, a kilometre and a half of these guys. And so they were our best friends over there. Ron spoke the language quite well. And uh, they had a car. I was too scared to drive because they, were, they drove on the other side of the road and they were all nutters over there. There were no road rules. You just pull out anywhere. And uh, you could get a bus for 20 cents anywhere or a train. So um, we went on trips around the country with these guys. They showed us different parts of the country. And we would meet up with them for meals and have significant chats whenever we had different crises going in our lives. But anyway, it's best for them to uh, tell you their story, but let's just pray for them as we hand over to them now. Father, we thank you for Ron and Gillian. We thank you for your call on their lives. We thank you that they have been obedient to your call, and through that, you have touched other lives. Lord, we just pray for them both as they share with us this morning, that we also can have hearts that are open to you, that we can hear your still small voice guiding us on our life's journey. And each of us are also called to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But for most of us, the world, our world, is here in Topol. So Lord, just cause them to speak life and truth into our lives this morning. In Jesus' name, <clears throat> amen. Could we have the, the PowerPoint, please? It's really great to be here because your city probably has the only Cafe Baku outside of Azerbaijan in the whole world. Well, yes, it's a blessing. Uh, is this on? Yep. Yeah, the blessing to be here today. We really feel quite at home because uh, we had the privilege of um, being in Helen and Martin's um, International Church and worshipping and the worship team with Helen and I feel another connection here too with seeing Mike and Amelia sitting here because um, I grew up in the same hometown as Mike and I was I remember where I was standing the day I found out that his mum was going to have a number five and um, yeah <laughs> that's that's Michael and it's just such a joy to see him there his mum has been a real um, friend and a mentor to me in my life and uh I've uh, taught all his siblings, so um, it's just a joy to be here. And uh, I just wanted to say, um, as as we look at that picture of our family, we look like you know one of these you know happy, amazing family um, because it's a Photoshop picture from our um, our. Um, relation who's a professional photographer and he did this incredible picture but I want to just give you the real and the, the dirty and the ugly today <laughs> because behind that picture we were going through the most painful year of our lives this was photo was taken four years ago and although I was we were smiling 
we were struggling. We had just adopted Vahid, and although he looks the most happiest boy, his life was full of trauma. And we were going through a really, really difficult time. I had some major health issues. And so I looked so vibrant and smiling, and I'm just remembering how I was sleeping only with the help of sleeping pills, and I was on painkillers for some, um, some conditions in my feet and, my, and hip problems and all sorts. And we were just, we were just broken people that year. And so today when we share, I don't want you to think that we're some kind of special people that we went and did these things. And it's not like that at all. We're actually very, very ordinary people. And I just want to share a little bit more uh, openly and real with you about that. Um, so our family now, although we were in Azerbaijan, we've settled in Tauranga last year and working with a YWAM base there. We're hoping to train up lots and lots more people to get out there. Um, so that's what we're doing now. But... Um, yeah, I just want to give honour to the fact that, you know, with missions, we're all called to missions, you know, whether it's in New Zealand or overseas, and, and we all have a part to play, and, and we're not here to make people feel guilty or feel like, oh, I should have done this, or I should... You, God has uniquely equipped us to be a part of the Great Commission. Nobody's exempt from it, so whatever role you have to play in it, uh, we're not here to make you sort of feel like, oh, you know, that's great for them, they went off and did this and that. It's not, not, not that, like that at all, and so... I just, as I grew up in Dargaville, I would, you know, I never knew that I was, would end up spending over 20 years of my life in, in Central Asia and Hong Kong and different places. But, but reflecting back on my life, I can't help but see how, how we all have a part. And as I look out on, over the congregation here, I, I am sure that you all are playing a part in your own way, whether you get on the plane or whether you don't. And so in doing that, um, I want to honour my parents today. So there's the next picture here. There's uh, the family of five girls. Um, I'm the one in the yellow dress. <laughs> um, so, you know, I just want to honour them because I want you to see how everybody plays a role. And I want to both honour my parents because they are both with the Lord. And, uh, and yet they had a heart for missions. And it was because of their heart for missions that I ever got on a plane because I, you know, I wanted the I wanted the happy life with the white picket fence and a big family. I had it all worked out, and there was no no plan in my of my in my head to go to Central Asia. But um, I just want to show you how my dad, he was a businessman, um, and he used his business skills to support missions. Um, he'd lend cars to missionaries and and go on mission trips himself and host mission prayer groups in our home, and he'd go off to the SIM or Leprosy Mission or whatever, you know, there was about half a dozen WEC, you know, all the different mission organizations. And um, he took us all along to the hospital to sing uh, to, the, to the patients. And, you know, it just, he just was a real giver. And then my mum, who was called, um, she went to Bible college and she felt that God was calling her to be a missionary, and, but she couldn't get where to go. And so she felt like God showed her, you got to raise a, your job is to raise a Christian family. And so she focused on that. She prayed for us uh, through our lives, and um, she was an incredible intercessor and um, prayed us all, and to the point that all five of us ended up involved in um, Christian ministry, whether it be in New Zealand or three of us were overseas. But, but I just look back now and see that her 19 grandchildren and 18 great-grandchildren, they are all, uh, I'd say 90% are really involved in, in ministry and serving God wherever, they, wherever God's planted them. So I see a few intercessors, I'm sure, out here that, that, are, that play a role. And so I want to thank you for that because it's, 
It's all the team of hundreds and hundreds of people behind us that enable us to, to go forth. And so Ron's going to share a bit more about Next what slide, please. Azerbaijan. And just before I sit down, we have a, a, a few prayer cards at the back if anyone wants to pray for us. We'd love that. <clears throat> well, Jillian's family was not the kind of family I grew up in um, whatsoever. In fact, I really didn't know much about missions. Um, I grew up in a family that loved the outdoors, and so the, the two favorite sports in my family were hunting and fishing in that order. Uh, and so someone said, well, if you love that so much, you should be a wildlife biologist. And so that's what I um, chose early on. I think from age 12, I was going to be a wildlife biologist. And so that led me to university. And on the path in university, uh, I encountered Jesus. And, and I realized that, that following Jesus meant following Jesus, that wherever Jesus was going, that I needed to look at going to. And so if, if that was in wildlife management, great. If it wasn't, then great. So I went on a missions trip in 1984, and that really changed my focus and perspective in that I started um, looking at the world differently. And I was in Mexico for my outreach, and I had uh, ran into people that had never heard of Jesus there. Uh, and I was struck by the, the incredible need in, in Mexico City. And so I made a commitment then that, Lord, I will use my degree to go into a country closed to the gospel and, and serve you there. And so I had started that path back in the 80s. Um, I didn't realize it was going to take 15 years for God to um, actually take me up on the, on, the, on the offer. And so, but I, still, I was still following Jesus throughout that time. And that uh, led me to Arizona where this picture was taken, doing research on that bird um, which was endangered. That became my master's thesis. I got my master's in Rhode Island and then got my dream job I'm working for the federal government in Rhode Island, uh, which I did for six years. I was the wildlife biologist for uh, a, um, a wildlife refuge there. And after about four years, I had a real dilemma. You see, in university, they taught us um, everything about the natural environment. We knew the plants. We knew the, the, the birds. I knew more about New Zealand birds than my wife did. Um, but they, what they didn't tell us about was people and how to deal with people. And so on our wildlife refuge, we actually had a boss that was really difficult. So because I worked for the federal government, that meant people came in and left because this boss was so difficult. So I didn't know what to do. Uh, so I was at a Bible study with my church, and I was kind of lamenting my problem. You know, I don't know what to do about my situation here. And they said, well, don't worry, um, we'll pray for you. So that was Wednesday, uh, and they prayed about what, you know, that God would give me wisdom what to do. Well, on Friday, a friend of mine came back from doing a discipleship training school with Youth with a Mission, and she said, Ron, you have to go and do this school. She said, you don't have to be a missionary, but it's about growing in intimacy with Jesus. And at the time, I was so hungry to know Jesus better. I was so hungry uh, that I would, I would have left my job to do it. And I just knew, even though this wasn't anything like what I was praying about, I knew this was God speaking to me about the next season of my life. So I actually took a leave of absence from my job for six months. 
and I went to um, Garden Valley, Texas, and did a discipleship training school with, at, at that time was Mercy Ships, the aquatic branch of YWAM at that time. And from the, the date I said I would go to my, uh, the end of my school, I got more leading direction and guidance from God on my future in ways I'd never had before or since, including a dream about some country in the former Soviet Union that was near a big body of water that had large mountains nearby, and, uh, and I felt like God was calling me there. I don't even know the name of the country um, in this dream, but the dream was so vivid, it was like I was there. So in my DTS, I learned uh, just out of curiosity, huh, where in the former Soviet Union is there a big body of water next to mountains? Um, and there was only one place that fit that, and it was this country called Azerbaijan. And so I thought, huh, that's interesting. Maybe God wants me to go there. Well, two weeks or three weeks later, a speaker came to our school, and the first thing out of his mouth was this country, Azerbaijan, that I had just had really just learned about. And I thought, well, maybe God wants me to go there. So I finished my DTS. I went to Brazil, loved Brazil. Long story short, I um, gave my notice to work, uh, and I, I said, I'm going to become a missionary. I'm going to this country called Azerbaijan. So in January 1999, I got on a plane in New York City, and I remember thinking, God, I really hope this is you. I really hope this is you, because if it's not, I just did the stupidest thing ever by quitting a job that I had trained 10 years to do and a job that most people would kill for in the States. Next slide, please. So it seems that one place in the world that's really on God's heart is this place called the 1040 window, which is the, the epicenter of the most unreached. And it, it is the... Uh, it is the... the the majority of those that practice um, Islam, Buddhism, and Hinduism. And so I ended up in this city called Baku, uh, which I think Baku is like the curtain rod of the 1040 window. We were actually at 41 degrees latitude. Um, next slide, please. There it is, on the Caspian Sea, with the Caucasus Mountains that run right from one end to the other. Um, next slide. So Azerbaijan means land of fire, and the reason they say that, the reason it is the land of fire is because of all the natural petroleum products there. There's places where the ground is literally on fire. Next slide. So Azerbaijan was one of the Muslim republics of the former Soviet Union. Uh, there are 8 million Azerbaijanis, but get this, there's 25 million Azerbaijanis in Iran. There are more Azerbaijanis in Iran than there are in Azerbaijan. So it's in a fascinating neighborhood, if you will. Russia to the north, uh, Turkey to the west, and there was a little piece of the country that's a separate island squished between Iran, Armenia, and Turkey called Nakhchivan. So Nakhchivan means land of Noah, and right where that section is, is right near where Ararat is in Turkey. So it is, indeed, it is indeed an ancient land, a very ancient land. Next slide. So Zoroastrianism came from um, ancient Persians, and it was, a, uh, it was a, a very simplistic religion where there was like a good god and a bad god, 
And they worship the four elements, earth, wind, fire, and water. And so you can find, even today, this ancient Zoroastrian temple just outside of Baku, which attests to the, um, the ancient roots of that land. And so today, during their, uh, their new year, which is the first day of spring, all these ancient Zoroastrian traditions come out of the woodwork, like jumping over fire. Next slide. But interestingly enough, Christianity actually came to Azerbaijan very early um, in history. Um, within the first century, a disciple of James came to Azerbaijan and started to spread the gospel throughout that region. Next slide. And so in Azerbaijan, particularly in the mountains, there are over a hundred ancient uh, church and monastery ruins, which attest to the fact that Christianity actually had a foothold there um, in, uh, you know, in probably the first seven, eight centuries after Jesus. But by the end of the 8th century, this thing called Islam came. And Azerbaijanis know, uh, they refer to themselves as sword Muslims. They said, we came to faith at the point of a sword. And they still acknowledge that to this day. Uh, what's interesting is that Azerbaijan is predominantly Shia. Now, the only other country that's predominantly Shia is Iran. So they share that, that history. And to some degree, there are Sunnis in the, in the mountains to the north. Next slide. What most people, um, yeah, and so when Christianity fell, in a, or when um, the Soviet Union fell, there were very few Christians in Azerbaijan. They say maybe there were 50. Um, today, there's, the numbers are somewhere around 8,000, but it's still less than 1%. Next slide. What most people don't realize about Islam is that uh, as a religion, it's, it's very powerless. So usually, governments that are Islamic um, use control, a lot of control, to um, enforce Islam. And so people, though, to get power, go to the occult for power. So this is true throughout the Muslim world, that they will go to a fortune teller, they will go to, um, to a special place, like this place, which is the tomb of, the, of what's known as the meat lord, the At-Aga, and so this guy, they say, had no bones, was buried there, and people would go there believing if, if they make a sacrifice and go to this tomb, they will get healing. This kind of stuff is all over Azerbaijan, and it's, and it's throughout the, the Muslim world. So uh, it's commonly referred to as folk Islam. But it and Islam are, are inextricably um, joined. Next slide. So it's very difficult to get into a Muslim country as a Christian missionary. You know, you just can't say, hi, I'm a Christian missionary, I'd like a visa. So there are other creative ways to get into what they call creative access countries. And so one of those is often a business. So we had a business there, and it was an um, English school, this school, which became a hub of... Uh, allowing missionaries to come into the country legally, do something legal like teaching English or teaching in that school, um, but also to be able to fulfill the, their calling, which is to bring, to bring the gospel to that, 
nations. So the International Learning Center still is there and still is working to help bring missionaries through. Next slide. Now, Baku is kind of interesting because it was the site of the world's first oil boom. This was where the, Roth, um, the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds and the Nobels made their millions was on Baku oil um, over 100 years ago. Next slide. And so it turns out that the Caspian actually has quite a, um, a resource of oil, some of which was never exploited in the deep water portions of the Caspian. And so after the Soviet Union fell, Azerbaijan worked a very lucrative deal with major oil companies to tap the deep water portions of the Caspian and build a pipeline overland through Georgia uh, and Turkey and down to the port of Jehan in the Mediterranean. This pipeline can pump a million barrels a day. Um, so you just do the math on what, what, that, what kind of money would come in. And so in 2005, the pipeline was finished. The taps were turned on. Next slide. And um, Azerbaijan, particularly Baku, started changing rapidly. Um, what had been a real rundown backwater city, poor infrastructure, all of a sudden was getting um, roads built, um, world-class buildings. Uh, next slide. World-class sporting events like Formula One, like that's why Cafe Baku is here is because the son of the owner was, a, was into motorsports and, bought, and heard that they were running Formula One in Baku. So that's why there's a, and, and, the, and the owner thought, well, it'd be interesting to name a cafe, Cafe Baku. Um, so Azerbaijan is trying to show itself to the world as this amazing place. Next slide. Back up one. It keeps, it, it's corrupt. doesn't want to show you. So it also has world-class corruption. World-class corruption. Um, of 180 countries that are tracked in the world, Azerbaijan usually finishes in the top 30 as most corrupt. You guys are in one of the least corrupt. So I was initially there on a church planting team. If you had only 50 believers in a nation, it made sense. Let's plant churches. And so I did that for a couple years, but there was a time when we looked at each other and said, hey, wouldn't it be great if we started a discipleship training school for Azerbaijani believers to help them that's in their language um, to raise them up? And so not really knowing what we were doing, but really feeling the, the, the leading of the Lord to, to um, step into this, um, several of us got together, and so in 2002, we started the first Azerbaijani Discipleship Training School. Now, this isn't a Muslim country, okay? You just don't, you can't put a sign out and say, you know, Christian training or anything. So this was real underground. So we rented a place by the beach in the summertime. We had 19 students, several married couples, some babies thrown in. Um, and, and it was crazy. It was really crazy. Um, trying to run this uh, all of us that were foreigners had jumped in way over our language ability. Um, but God really met us in the process in that of those 19 students, you know, they all made it through graduation. We sent outreaches to Turkey, Uzbekistan, and to Azerbaijan. And, when, and Azerbaijanis got their first taste of missions themselves, realizing that God is calling them to be missionaries. 
We loved it so much, next slide, we decided to purchase a property and run it again in 2004. Because what I didn't say in 2002, we nearly got caught by the police and uh, turned into the police. And the, our landlord was looking for a way to, to get rid of us when she found out we were Christians. And she went to a lawyer for advice. What she didn't know is she picked the only Christian lawyer in the whole country. <laughs> Who knew us? But he didn't know what we were up to um, down by the beach there. So he, later he told us that story and said, you know, if, if I knew what you guys were doing, I'd have told you not to do that. But we realized we needed to get our own property. We got our own property uh, called the Yellow House. And next slide. And so we did another school in 2004. And I don't think I realized, you know, it wasn't an, um, it, it's not necessarily that you can get a property and start something, um, but it's, it's whether you're going to, particularly in that part of the world, it's whether you have the endurance to see it established. Because no sooner than we, did we get this property than we saw spiritual warfare in ways we had never seen prior. Like that school nearly came undone. We had students manifesting demons. We had, we had students getting sicknesses that the doctor said, there's no reason you should be sick. We saw... Um, then we saw conflict break out in our school between the students, between staff and students. Um, and by the end of that school, I was the school leader. And by the end of that school, um, we had conflict with the staff. And I remember looking, thinking, what, you know, are we ever going to survive this? And it took a lot of that to see things established there. Um, just because you say, just because the Lord leads you into a place doesn't necessarily mean there won't be opposition. The one promise that I find never makes it onto Christians' refrigerators is Jesus' promise of, in this world you'll have trouble. He wasn't kidding. But he did say, but be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. So we had some real hairy conflict um, in that school and following schools um, to help establish people. We weren't trying to establish a school, but we're trying to establish believers, that they're strong in the faith, in their faith. Next slide. And so the school continued. Um, 2005, I nearly got, um, I ended up in the mayor's office in a town right next to the Iranian border because they knew I was an American, and they thought I was CIA. <laughs> so this, all this drama happened. You know, the other in the village that we were, were staying in at the time, kids came up and said, they say you're FBI, and, uh, and they've called the police. Now, this is the wrong time to be reading Brother, Moon's, uh, Brother Yoon's book, um, Heavenly Man. Um, but we prayed as a team, as an outreach team. What do we do? Do we leave? Do we go? We, when we really felt like we needed to stay and leave when we were planned to leave the next morning. So we left the next morning. The police came, broke the door down but we were gone. Sometimes you get protection like that. Sometimes you've got to go through it. Next slide. Um, by 2008, the staff in that school had been trained up, and I was sort of out of a job. And to this day, um, Azerbaijanis are running that school, um, training and raising up Azerbaijanis. Because uh, after a while, you start realizing, you know, I was, I was fluent in Azerbaijani, or, or more likely what I call moment, momentary affluency. 
Like there were, I had, there were moments where I was brilliant, and there were moments where I was completely clueless about what the conversation was about. Um, but it was a no-brainer to raise, to realize they were the future. They were the future. So we really needed to be um, intentional about raising them up. And life for them is not easy um, for Azerbaijani believers. I'm thinking back to one girl in one school um, who on outreach, she was calling her boyfriend who wasn't a Christian, um, telling him where they were going on, um, to their outreach location. And the, um, the school leader was, was furious. He wanted to dump her off the team. Uh, he kept calling me saying, what do I do about this girl? Then I talked to the girl and she said, what's wrong with these le- this leader you've got here? He's yelling at me. Um, they were all Azerbaijanis. Um, and so after, so I talked to both of them. We resolved the conflict mostly. And then after the outreach, they came back and I talked to her and I said, Fatima, you know sh- you shouldn't be dating a, a Muslim? And she said, I know. And, and she said something that I'll never forget. She said, I love Jesus. I just don't trust him. And for believers in that nation, they have a lot to walk through um, to follow Jesus. That Jesus is going to be enough to provide for them because oftentimes when they say, I'm going to follow Jesus, their families might not be so excited. And their families might try to stop that. And their families might kick them out. And their families might beat them up. Um, it's not easy to follow Jesus in that nation at all. Next slide. So that's the new yellow house, now called the anchor house, um, that Azerbaijanis are running even right now. There's a school running right now. Next, ha- next slide. So after I was worked out of a job, one of my areas of, of interest had been worship. And so I was given a lot of recording equipment, <laughs> $5,000 worth of recording equipment and said, oh, would you like $5,000 worth of recording equipment? I said, yep. And uh, so I started work called More Than Music, um, helping Azerbaijanis find their sound in worship because often it doesn't sound like what we sang today. Um, there was a lot of translated music, but um, I broke into a whole realm of trying to help them write their songs, their style. Next slide. And that included going to other countries, um, teaching them how to write worship songs in their style and their culture. Next slide. Um, Doing recording projects myself. This was a Christmas album. Next slide. It's me. And now my wife is going to explain... Yeah, I just wanted to share how, you know, God God uses our giftings and um, mine just happened to be in the area of education as a teacher. And so... um, what I initially had done is, and when I was still single was had spent some time in Hong Kong and, and also establishing a school for missionary kids in Kazakhstan. And I came back from Kazakhstan thinking, okay, I've done my eight years. It's pretty good. I can settle down now. But God had different ideas, and I was asked to go to Azerbaijan and start a school for missionary kids there. And I thought, no, I've done my bit, you know. Um, <laughs> but I, I went to visit the place and thought, oh, no, another Soviet-wrecked country. Um, I wasn't so excited about it, but I just, and I just wanted to share the reason, how I got led to go there really briefly, uh, because I think that sometimes we get this idea that, um, that God's going to make us do something so incredibly hard that um, we, we can't possibly do it. 
And so what I said to God was, as I got on the plane to go back to New Zealand after checking out this job, I thought, well, God, I have no desire to do this. Um, the, I know how hard it is. It, was this, it would have been the third school that I'd been involved in pioneering, and I knew how hard it was. And I said, well, God, if you want me to do this, please put your desire in my heart to do it, because I have no desire to do it. So that you shouldn't pray prayers like that unless you're really willing for God to answer prayers. Because I woke up one morning and I just had this excitement about doing it. I thought, you know what, it's only a year. I'll just take my computer. I've got a school on my computer. I'll take that. I'll help them get started and then I'll come back to New Zealand. So, you know, but God had other plans. <laughs> and, and Philippians 2 verse 13, it's really, I, I would say it's one of my favorite verses. He, he puts his desire in us if we're willing to allow him to do that. He works in us to will and do of his good pleasure. And the new living, it says, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. And so I feel like that's what he did with me. He put that desire, I'll just go there for a year. You can flick through the next uh, four or five slides of, um, this is the building of Caspian Academy. We, we lived on the top floor. And uh, that was, I think, the previous building, um, teaching some of the students. And they're all, all mostly missionary families. There were a few Christian oil families. Um, if you go to the next one... Um, yeah, we, we got into some sports there with the, with the local schools. It's our daughter there and the, the tallest one on the front row. Um, and uh, we felt that we could be a testimony to the other international schools because they would talk to us about, wow, you must have an incredibly great sports program because your team is always winning um, and you've got great sportsmanship. And so we were able to have a light there amongst the other schools and all the, the teachers there are all volunteers um, they have come and they've been supported by whatever country they're from and um, all the, the families there, they can stay longer. They're all doing ministry there in Azerbaijan, but they can stay longer because their children's needs are taken care of. Um, so, yeah, you can put the next slide. So we just want to just um, share a little bit uh, you know, at, as we close about some of the questions with, regarding going out and doing what God's called us to do, whether it's going out over, the, over to your neighbours or going downtown or wherever you're going, uh, we're called to go. And um, as a single, I, I felt like it would have been better if God had waited and, you know, and if I had waited till I'd got married and then I could go. But actually God led me out um, as a single. And so when I'd already been out in the field a long time when I met Ron in, in Baku, and so just for any, any older singles there, I'd like to encourage you that, you know, if, God, if that's on your heart and it's on God's heart too, even at 44 and 45, we met and we married. Um, we came back to New Zealand, got married, and, and uh, we were blessed with a little girl. We said to God, if you want us to have children, we'll give you a little three-month window. And he took us right up on the opportunity, and we had our daughter. Um, we came back to New Zealand for me to give birth to Emily when I was 45, nearly 46, so, you know, we see how God has faithfully provided for our family, and he's taken us on a new journey, um, and it's been a difficult journey, to be honest. I've always had it on my heart to, to, to adopt, and we went to the orphanage in Azerbaijan, and we spent four years working through all the corruption and the paperwork, and then finally, four years ago, we adopted this little boy, and his name's Vahid, and God put his his fingerprints all over that adoption. We went to see him the first time. I found out that he had a physical disability and he needed a new left hip. And I 
I just got a new left hip last year. So there was just immediately, I just felt bonded to him, like, oh, he's, he's got, he's got a, maybe we can get two hips for the price of one or something. But, <laughs> but anyway, we just, um, we, we asked God, is he the one that you want us to adopt? Because he was actually older than our daughter. And we asked, um, we we're asking the Lord to put his fingerprints over it. And as we as we looked up the meaning of his name, we found out Vahid means the one, the only one. And uh, when they translated the Bible and God, uh, John 3.16, they used that word Vahid. And we, we, we had no doubts that um, even though it, would have, it was a difficult process to adopt there, we adopted him four years ago. And it began, it began a new journey for us because... Um, it was really incredibly hard. Within a day, we realized this boy had had a life of, well, he was abandoned and as a baby, and he'd had a life of trauma. And so I'd gone from being involved in Christian schools with a lot of children to this just one boy that was incredibly hard to deal with because of the trauma in his life. He's had every, every type of abuse you could imagine. And so within the first year, when, when my health wasn't good and, and we had this baby, I just said, God, what, did, what have we done? I felt this incredible grief that um, the things that we love doing, like in missions, that were going to come to an end because we could see we could no longer stay in that country. But um, I felt like the Lord said, are you willing to lay down your life for this boy? And I thought, it's just one boy. You know, what about, we, we could be doing all these other things with other people, but, you know, he wants us to love the one. And it, for you, it might just be your neighbor. It might be someone in your own family. But uh, God's taken us on a journey, which has included coming back to New Zealand and, and uh, taking up the opportunities. Uh, we're getting a lot of support from uh, New Zealand services here with our son, and he's both our children are at Bethlehem College and in Tauranga, and they've been a, a great blessing to us. So even though it's been a hard journey to, to lay down the things that we had invested our lives into, we see God's incredible faithfulness. Like here we were as two singles, been out, we had not... And we didn't have savings, we didn't have a lot of money, and God just faithfully provided for us. We got back to Tauranga, we have our own house, and it was just a miracle story. And one thing after another, just miracle after miracle, and God is so incredibly faithful to provide for us, no matter what he's called you to, to, to do. So our encouragement to you is, whatever he's putting on your heart to be involved in, to um, step out and, and do that, because... He, you will, he will not fail you, and, and it's so exciting to be part, part of um, what he's doing in, 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 um, in this world, whether it be in this city or beyond. So, um, Could I have the last, yeah, last slide? Yeah. So I don't know where Jesus wants to take you, but I have a pretty good idea um, that, that it's going to be somehow, it's going to be the process of communicating his love to those that don't know it, whether it's your neighbor, whether it's another town in New Zealand, or whether it's somewhere halfway across the world. Because yeah, everyone realizes that God loves the world, but they don't realize necessarily that God is in the process of wanting the world's, the, the, in the process of helping us love him with our whole heart. And that, because we were created to do that. And so, but often the real question is, are we willing to go? Um, and that choice is ours. And our, our admonition is go wherever he says go. It's worth it. Go wherever he says go. And if that means stay, stay put. We didn't want to be in New Zealand, honestly. We love you, but, but 
um, we've, we had just had this calling elsewhere, but it was so clear when God um, led us to come back. It was really clear. Um, not easy, but it was clear. Just before we finish, I, I did want to say a couple of other things just with regards um, the school, the Caspian Academy. We are really trying to put the word out for any Christian teachers um, because they always struggle to get the teachers to go. So if you have a relative or a friend who is a teacher and would like a great experience, it's really um, awesome if they can be in touch with me. And with regards to our son, we, we, you know, you just don't, we're all on a journey and we don't know, like I'm sure when my mom was crying out to God for which country should she go to, and, and very disappointed when all her friends, her single friends, it was the day when a lot of single missionaries were going out, and they all got calls to other countries, and she, got, she felt God say, you've got to raise, you need to stay home and raise a family uh, to love God. And, and I just wish that she could see her grandson, because she never met Vahid. Um, she passed away, actually, just six months after we had adopted him. And... Uh, if she could see him, you know, even though with all his, his issues and struggles and with all the uh, trauma that he's dealing with, when we see the God inside of him that went coming out, when like last Saturday he was, we'd had some very difficult times and he had been quite, we'd had to get a lot of support from him for, for some of his needs. But that Saturday he went off to a revival meeting at a youth group or something, and he come back and he said, "Mom, I prayed for this woman. I gave her a word from God, and and she and I and I asked if she had pain in her body, and I prayed for her, and the pain went. and And just to see that little glimpse, and you just don't know. We we're having psychiatrists tell us, well, you know, it's not looking good. This boy could be end up in in jail, but we're saying no. God has a different destiny for his life, and um, we're waiting to see. So." encourage you if you're in that journey too with, um, with loved ones or relatives and you're reaching out to them, you know, just hold on to the promises of God that, that our stories aren't over and there's a lot more to come. Yep. So let me pray for you. Would you just put your hands out like this in, in just a posture of surrender? So Jesus, we, we really do offer ourselves up as a living sacrifice. And Jesus, we don't always know what the next step is. So I pray for the next steps in this room, represented here, Jesus, that you give people courage to take that next step, wherever that is. That Jesus, they would, um, that they would experience your plans and destiny for their lives. That they would experience um, your fulfillment of that step, of the fruit of that step. But Jesus, we, um, we just say, we offer ourselves because you're worthy. You are worth it all, Jesus. You're worth whatever little things we do. Um, the cup of cold water, Jesus, you're worth that too. You're, you're worthy, worthy of our lives and you're worth it all, Jesus. And we thank you for even allowing us to join with you, Jesus, on this journey.